We have all played the fool so many, many times. Usually, it has been when we've forgotten that we are not our own, that all our personal abilities are gifts, gifts that we did not make, gifts for which we can take no credit. So often we ignore the fact that we are but stewards, owning nothing. We were born without our doing. We were endowed by inheritance with our talents gratis. We were preserved by loving parents and friends through the early dangerous years of life. How quickly we forget, how easily, that all we have is a, is a gift from above. There's an illustration of this in the Old Testament playboy story of Samson, that happy, foolish giant who wasted his gifts terribly until the last moment of life. What a character was this Samson. A foolish giant indeed. The weakest strong man that ever lived. Now Samson was a child of prayer. He was a boy that came of miraculous birth. A child of great expectations. For from his mother's womb he was consecrated specially to God in the bonds of a particular covenant. He was to be a Nazarite. His hair was never to be shorn. That unshorn hair was a symbol of God's special blessing upon him. From his youth, the Spirit of God moved upon him, endowing him in an extraordinary manner with great strength. It had been foretold that he would deliver his people. It was soon clear he had the strength to do it. But he was a fool. In Judges chapter 16 We read one of the last of his follies. I'm reading from verse 4. After this he loved a woman in the valley of Sorak, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came to her and said to her, Entice him. See wherein his great strength lies. By what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to subdue him. And we'll give you eleven hundred pieces of silver. And Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. And Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings which have not been dried, then I'll become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings which had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in wait in an inner room. And she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings, as a string of toes snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. And Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you've mocked me, told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. Further down the chapter, we find how Samson divulged his secret. And so while he slept, he was shaven. And then when the Philistines awoke him, he was as weak as any man. The Philistines bound him and took him to do a servant's job, grinding grain. We read later on in the scripture, the same 16th chapter. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God and to rejoice. But they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has slain many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may make sport for us. 
So they called Samson out of the prison, and he made sport before them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the lad who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about three thousand men and women who looked on while Samson made sport. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me, I pray thee, only this once, O God, that I may be avenged upon the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars upon which the house rested, and he leaned his weight upon them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other, And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed with all his might, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people that were in it. So the dead whom he slew at his death were more than those whom he'd slain during his life. What a story. This foolish giant delivered his people by his death. And how did he get his strength back? Why, when they blinded Samson and set him a-grinding, There, bound in bronze fetters, his hair had begun to grow again as a sign of his repentance. His hair grew with his repentance and his strength grew with his hair. There's a true core of religion in his prayer when he asks God to strengthen him. It is penitence that pleads, remember me, O Lord God. Many a silent tear had fallen from Samson's blind eyes before that prayer could come to his lips as he leaned there on the great pillars. Now he clearly recognises the source of his strength, and so he prays. He has taken back a conscious dependence again, and God can use him. There's humility in his prayer. Just this once he asks for strength. He feels that after his fall, no more of the brilliant exploits of the former days are possible. But God grants his prayer, and Israel is delivered by the death of Samson. He was the last of the judges. With all his faults and grossness, according to Hebrews 11, he's reckoned a true soldier of God because of his penitence. Now, what does the story mean for us? Well, we ought to see, first of all, in Samson, an impersonation of his own nation. Like him, Israel was strong as long as it kept the covenant of its God. Like him, it was ever prone to follow after strange loves. Its Delilahs were the gods of the heathen, in whose laps it laid its anointed head, at whose hands it suffered the loss of its God-given strength. For like Samson, Israel was weak when it forgot its consecration, and its punishment came from the objects of its infatuated desires. Like him, it was blinded, bound, and reduced to slavery, for all its power was held, like Samson's, on condition of loyalty to God. Samson's life is a mirror in which Israel could see her own history reflected. But friend, isn't that true of God's Israel today? God's Israel today can be strong only as it is consecrated. There are churches today that performed a great work a hundred years ago or two hundred years ago. Their first days were heroic. Their pioneers knew what it was to suffer and to serve. They were faithful to the truth. They would exchange 10,000 errors for one truth. They were earnest and holy labour, and God made them exceedingly useful. But now so many churches have grown respectable. 
and useless, almost. It cannot be dodged. This truth that our usefulness depends upon our dedication, our consecration to God. Churches, nations, organisations, if they forget this truth, they'll become as weak as the foolish giant when he lost his hair. Let's take churches. Churches are gifted like Samson. They have the strength of the Holy Spirit so long as they are dedicated. They have the wonderful gift of the gospel that can set those who are bound free and make them joyous. But churches sometimes forget. George Bernard Shaw wrote a play called St. Joan. And while Shaw was not a believer, he often had great insight into the truths of Christianity. In this story, St. Joan, he tells the story of the village maiden who, prompted by angelic voices, which she claimed to have heard while tending her father's sheep, asked for and eventually secured command of the French troops at the very time when they were demoralised because of the invading victorious British forces. But Joan rallied the French troops. With amazing success, she was able to drive back the English. She expelled them from the soil of France. And the crown prince of the nation was enthroned. But the fickle tide of public opinion turned against Joan. She was handed over to her enemies, and in 1431, when only 19 years of age, she was burnt at the stake for heresy and for witchcraft by the same church that had condemned her. She was declared venerable in 1904, declared blessed in 1908, and declared a saint in 1920. Now in scene two, we have Joan first meeting the Archbishop of France. And Joan is overawed as she stands beside this religious potentate. In actual fact, he's a rogue. He's shrewd, he's worldly wise. There's nothing of a true churchman about him except for his imposing bearing. But Joan doesn't understand. She falls on both knees before him. And with bowed head, not daring to look up, she says this. My Lord, I'm only a poor country girl. You, you're filled with the blessedness and the glory of God himself. Will you touch me with your hands and give me your blessing? Now, this outburst quite embarrasses the Archbishop. The courtiers who are standing around him, they're well aware there's not much of the blessedness and glory of God in him. Nevertheless, the Archbishop blushes. Even though he's a time server, even though he's worldly, he can recognise true devotion when he sees it, and his heart is touched. But he wants to help Joan, so he gently places his hand upon her head, and he says, My child... You're in love with religion. Joan is startled. Am I? Am I, she says. I never thought of that. Is there any harm in it? The Archbishop replies, There's no harm in it, my child, but there is danger. Joan is radiantly happy and she just says, Well, there's always danger, except in heaven. Oh, my Lord, you've given me such strength, such courage. It must be a most wonderful thing to be Archbishop. Dr. Ronald Sweet, commenting on this, says that we can see Shaw here at his best as a satirist. 
Shaw is pointing out that there is danger in religion and also harm. There's a double danger. There's first all the danger for the sincere like Joan, that her conscience might ultimately bring her into collision with the entrenched interests of church and state. The faithful who wish to be true to death, they may indeed run into organisational bureaucracy. All institutions are self-perpetuating. They build and build until they forget the reason for their building. They are idolatrous. And this danger threatens even the Church of Christ, the true Church. So sure is correct. As he puts into the mouth of the Archbishop the statement, there can be danger in religion. There's danger for those that take religion seriously. Sooner or later, they'll run into opposition. And it can come from the church itself. But there was another danger, and this was the Archbishop's danger. This was his grievous peril. There's the danger of confusing one's own prejudices and desires with the mystic voices of the angels. There's the danger of making religion the accomplice of pride and self-will and ambition. That's the way it was with the Archbishop. Wasn't he in danger of manipulating all the solemn authority of the church which he wielded as Archbishop and make it the accomplice of the political and social and financial status quo? Did the Archbishop want change? Did he want his authority, his authority usurped? Of course not. What about us? What about churches today? My friend, there are the same dangers. Literature is full of the dangers that attend institutions, even sacred institutions. Dostoevsky tells one story from the brothers Karamazov. He tells the story of the Grand Inquisitor. Do you remember it? The story takes place in Seville, Spain. It's the 16th century. It's the height of the Inquisition. The Grand Inquisitor of Seville is the cardinal of the city. He's severe, he's tall, he's old, very old. But on one day alone, recently, he has burned 100 heretics to the glory of God, of course. But then Dostoevsky has Jesus appearing the next day at Seville. He wants to walk with his children once more, as he had in ancient Palestine. The Christians are people of the Spirit. They recognise Jesus. And so spontaneously they flock to him. Jesus begins to heal people, as he did during his earthly life. And he comes to the cathedral steps as a funeral procession emerges. There's a corpse in a white casket, the corpse of a seven-year-old child. And the people wonder, will he raise this girl as he had of old? The mother kneels before him. If it be thou, she cries, raise my child from the dead. The coffin is placed on the ground. Jesus looks into it and he says what he'd once said in ancient Palestine. Little girl, arise. And the little girl does so. But at that very moment, the Grand Inquisitor appears and he calls upon the guardians of the of the cathedral to take hold of Christ, to arrest him, to put him in the dungeon. Late that night, 
when Jesus has been put in the dark, narrow, vaulted prison in the old building of the sacred court, the Grand Inquisitor comes to him. After a pause, looking at Christ, he says, It is you. You. And then he gave a long, long speech. And in essence, he said this, that Jesus came promising men freedom, but freedom is too great a responsibility for ordinary people. The Grand Inquisitor says that long ago, the church had made a bargain with men, that if men would surrender their freedom to the church, the church would give them happiness. That had been a bargain that had been sealed and settled for centuries, and Jesus has no right to return to earth and jeopardise this bargain. Men would sooner enjoy happiness than bear the terrible burden of freedom. Why should Jesus come back and condemn men to freedom, which can be so terrible? That's the speech of the the Cardinal, the Grand Inquisitor. And throughout it all, Jesus says nothing. The Cardinal's angry, he's vexed, he wants Jesus to say something, however bitter, however terrible. But suddenly Jesus rises and he comes to the old man and kisses him gently on his bloodless aged cheeks. That's his only answer. The old man's taken aback. He opens the door and he tells Jesus to go. Go, come no more. Don't come at all. Never, never. And then we read these words. The kiss glows in the cardinal's heart. But the old man sticks to his idea. My friend, even for men and women in religion, Truth can be buried. Selfish motives can dominate. Religion can be dangerous. Most ministers use a set of volumes known as the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. The editor was Kittle, a fanatical Nazi who pursued Jews to death. Yet he edited this great set of books on Bible research. It's possible to have our strength shorn from us and not know it. Religion is dangerous indeed. Of course, churches are made up of people like you and me. The church is to change. We have to change. We have to remember that Samson found his strength when he was penitent. The New Testament has much to say about penitence. Over 70 times it calls on men to repent. Repentance, dedication and strength, they go together. But before we talk more on that, let's take another look at Samson. You know, this book of Judges, it really means book of saviours. Israel's judges were deliverers, saviors. Let me read to you from Judges 16, something else about Samson. Samson went to Gaza. And there he saw a harlot and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we'll kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, 
And at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and of the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that's before Hebron. Why am I reading this to you? Because, my friend, all the judges in this book, by their work of salvation and deliverance, point to Jesus. In the good things that they did, they remind us of him. As a matter of fact, Matthew 1 and verse 18 tells us that at the birth of Jesus, an angel quoted from the words that were spoken at the birth of Samson about saving his people. See Judges 13 and verse 5 and compare Matthew 1.18. The passages are quite parallel. It speaks about a woman conceiving and bearing a child who would save the people of Israel. Now here in this story, we have Samson going to Gaza a heathen city, to a wicked woman to love her. We read of the attack upon him, his lying till midnight, and then his arising and taking the doors of the gate of the city and the, and the cross posts, pulling them up, bar and all, putting them on his shoulders and carrying them to the top of the hill. Long, long after Samson, there was another mighty champion who came from heaven to the gazer of this world was love that brought him down, love to a most unworthy object. He loved the sinful church that had gone astray from him. But he came from heaven, he left the ease and the delights of his father's palace to put himself among the Philistines, among the sons of sin. And there he lay silently in the tomb at midnight. He who is to bruise the serpent's head was himself bruised. The world's great deliverer, there he lay, as dead as any stone. As though the foes of righteousness had captured him as they later captured Samson. But at the proper moment, Christ awoke. He had defeated death and snow, so now he pulls up death's posts and bars and gates. He takes them to heaven. The scripture says he took a multitude of captives with him from the grave. He delivered, resurrected some at his own resurrection. In Colossians 2 and verse 14, we read that he triumphed over principalities and powers and made a show of them openly. My friend, when you read about Samson, don't only see his follies, which tell of us and of institutions, even the follies of the church. But see the mighty acts of Samson, where he typifies our Lord Jesus, who came to the gazer of this world, to love the unlovely, to rob hell, to open Hades, to triumph over wickedness. My friend, our Lord has defeated the world, the flesh and the devil. They have no legal claim over us now. The law can no longer be our creditor. It remains a standard of righteousness and it is fulfilled in those that believe, but it can no longer be our creditor. We're not saved by anything we do or lost by anything we do. We are saved by a right relationship with Jesus Christ. But we need to look upon our Saviour as he's found in the Old and the New Testaments and he's found in this story of Samson. For he has indeed destroyed hell and the curse 
And Satan is indeed a defeated foe, as Hebrews 2 and verse 14 tells us. He has spoiled principalities and powers, and they have no right to lord it over us anymore. Sin is a defeated foe, my friend. Whatever your besetting sin, don't let it get your attention. Whatever gets your attention gets you. Don't be praying about it all day long and all night long. Rather, look upon Jesus, the Deliverer. Look upon how he loves you. Realize he accepts you regardless of your success in keeping the law. See Romans 3:28, the New English Version. And when you see the love of Christ for you, my friend, that besetting sin will be overcome. Spontaneously. Not as you're trying to do it now. Effort, effort, effort amidst despair. Look unto Jesus. See that he's already defeated that thing. Believe it, and it is so. Now, my friend, look at those last verses of Judges 16, where Samson is between the two great pillars and where he bows his head and willingly dies. And as he willingly dies, he delivers his people. Look at that great palatial place where all the lords of the Philistines were gathered. As Samson destroyed them by his death, so did Christ to principalities and power. As Samson died willingly, so did Christ. As Samson delivered his people by his death, so did Christ. Samson was between the two pillars and Christ was between the two thieves. Samson bowed his, bowed himself and scripture tells us in John's gospel that Jesus bowed his head. And as he did so, the battlements of hell crumbled and you and I are free. The great veil of the most holy place was rent that you and I might know that the way is open to the heart of God. Whosoever will may come with holy boldness, with great assurance. We may enter within the veil. The veil was rent, my friends. It wasn't rolled up to be dropped down again sometime. The way is open, permanently open, for our Christ has overcome death and the devil. And so... If we would have the Christian church to be strong in the strength of Christ today, it must revive in dedication. It must practice penitence. It must go back to the scriptures and search them. Search them as hungry men, hungry women. There'll be no saved world till there's a saved church. We're told in Revelation 3 that the church of the last days would be a Laodicean church, lukewarm and priest with words, knowing not it's wretched and poor and blind and naked. But Christ loves that church. Christ died for that church. It'll not be reformed by criticism, but only by penitence and by love. You and I help constitute that church. Let us sweep in front of our individual doorsteps. Let us repent. And then... The church will be clean, and the world, my friends, can be prepared for the coming of our Lord. Read the story of Samson. Read it and observe. Dedication and strength go together for institutions and individuals.